0: Welcome to The Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only, and all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain DC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out. Okay, let's do this. My guest today is Lex Socklin, Global Fintech Co-Head at Consensus. Lex, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Before we begin, would love to hear more about your background and why you decided to join Consensus. Sure. Uh, so,
1: my background is uh, a combination of uh, the the accountant and the banker, and the the artist and a hacker so i've done both uh, of those hats i spent a bunch of time on wall street uh, doing strategy for uh, companies like lehman barclays and deutsche Uh, lehman was my first exit uh, my first successful exit to barclays Um, and then um, i started in fintech entrepreneurship early 2009 uh, building out a robo-advisor in new york and that's kind of what the neobanks are to the uk today um, and spent about six years um, building a company, automating sort of the, the distribution layer of financial services products. Um, out of that, you know, I kind of get the scar tissue of being an entrepreneur. And uh, there's a moment to really think about what's next um, and what's, what are the transformative technologies that people are using and what vertical industries they're using them in. And so, I spent a few years, uh, doing deep dive research, uh, with a practice I founded called Autonomous Next. I'm sure a few folks in the crypto world, uh, have seen those reports and, uh, got really engaged and fell in love with, uh, the concept of smart contracts and token offerings and the microeconomics inherent within, uh, token-based networks. Uh, and, um, autonomous next uh, went underwent an m a transaction last year uh, and so uh, I took the opportunity to look at who's doing I think the some of the coolest stuff at scale so at, at a uh, at a footprint that uh, could move both the frontier as well as the incumbent industry can you know, change and challenge and transform what large institutions are doing today. Uh, There's only one place that marries both of those vectors. Uh, There's only one place that I'm aware of that, you know, would work on a global trade uh, consortia or with the world's largest investment banks on one end to tokenize their activities. And on the other hand, have, you know, best in class thinking and exposure to DeFi protocols. Um, And that place is consensus. So I joined um, to focus exactly on that issue and to stand up a number of products that
0: uh, will be rolling out over the, the coming months. That's really exciting and, and definitely Consensus is one of the most important players. I think everyone would agree um, in the crypto ecosystem. Wondering, um, were you also focused specifically on Ethereum, which obviously is the focus of Consensus, Or was it more about the scale and the size of the opportunity um, at Consensus that you found really compelling? Oh, oh boy! What a
1: what a hard existential question. <laughs> you know, I think I think you got to when you think about protocols and networks, you got to thread the needle. Um, networks are powerful when they're networks, meaning the more nodes you have, uh, the more value and economic activity accrues into them. The more they're actually meaningful. Having lots of little networks doesn't do a lot of work, and so. Um, you know, in my mind, we're going to have several and they are going to be interoperable, uh, but they are going to be vertically distinct. Uh, and their scale, and to some extent, incumbency, incumbency at this point matters. So, Ethereum in, in, the, in terms of uh, for example, the number of developers, I believe, uh, you know, if you believe Twitter Twitter statistics that you see, uh, it's something like three times the developers uh, uh, working on Ethereum versus Bitcoin. And that that is already, all of that combined is by far more than uh, the other protocols. And this is just an open source. Uh, and then when you look at the world of traditional institutions, and I can kind of motivate why I still think that's an important part to focus on. Um, when you look at the world of traditional financial institutions, uh, th- there's only one uh, solution at all they're thinking about that is a public chain or that is connected to a public chain, and that's Ethereum. You know, there's nothing else. So for me, it was an easy choice. If if you're if you're motivated by the promise of programmable money and smart contract based financial uh Manufacturers and kind of all the stuff that's motivating the DeFi evolution, it, it was hard to find an, another location that has the same impact.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think the exciting part about the Ethereum ecosystem is exactly what you just mentioned, right? I mean, there's so much development um, happening on top of the protocol. Um, and I think, yeah, clearly, at least now, It's the clear leader in terms of developer activity. I mean, think about,
1: sorry to to interrupt, is just, if you think about the competitive advantage of bringing an Ethereum-based software platform to to any incumbent or to any investment manager or to any bank, um, I mean, not only do you get all of the benefits of blockchain out of the box around I mean, scarcity and authenticity and all of that stuff, but you also get thousands of open source developers constantly working on your behalf to make the thing that you're going to use better. There's, there's no fintech provider that gets that externality otherwise. And then number two is you have either hundreds of millions or billions of dollars being spent across the world to secure the system. And again, that's just, you get that for free. Um, So I think it's it's just really compelling.
0: Yeah, no doubt. must be a super um, exciting um, place to be at. And and what exactly does um, a global fintech co-head mean? Um, at Consensus, wh- what are you focusing on specifically?
1: So we'll be we'll be packaging up and announcing the you know the brand and the initiatives in the coming months. But I can share the general outlines of the focus. and And I think folks and uh, your your listeners know that Consensus has been engaged in a whole set of different fintech adventure. I mean, very many adventures, uh, very many adventures and science projects and investments and uh projects and spokes um but if you narrow it down there are a number of uh financial services related activities and so you can think of them along the just the maturity curve or like the risk curve of uh crypto development so we have at the i'll start with the most conservative. So at the most conservative end, we help financial institutions and large uh, trade finance bodies and that kind of player uh, think about launching private or public permissioned consortia uh, uh, on uh, blockchains that we deploy for them. And of course, the benefit of going onto mainnet as an adjacent thing is, is always there. So that's number one. Number two is going a little bit more uh, risk seeking is digital assets and everything that's involved in that. So both in terms of providing platforms and software to launch digital securities uh, or to digitize real estate uh, interests, we just did this in France, or to help build uh, digital asset exchanges, which we just did in Singapore. Um, So... Again, that's a somewhat conservative theme in the sense that you're taking securities and wrapping them in in a token format, but how to do it, how to do it well, to do it in a locally aware regulatory sort of overlay, all that stuff uh, is another set of initiatives and things that we do. And then if you step up your risk tolerance a little bit more, um, we still support um, the launch of utility tokens or exchange tokens, depending on Kind of who you're listening to in terms of your classification um, and specifically not just the launch but what we're excited about is engagement and use so everything around staking governance voting uh the interplay between the tokens themselves you know we're, we're working on uh kind of a coherent packaging of how these things fit together and then number four if you Maximize your your risk seeking for uh, the crypto ecosystem. You know it it gets us into the DeFi protocols and the manufacturing of financial instruments through uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, and again, that's an area where we are we're building both um, engines as well as some consumer interfaces uh, that people will be able to use shortly.
0: And and do you have a dedicated team working on that, Lex? Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: this is an an existential, uh, meaningful uh, industry bet for us. And so we've got a number of teams that are working along the, the different features that I talked about. Uh, and we also spent a lot of time thinking about how to cross-pollinate uh, these different parts of the crypto maturity curve, because... The things that we see on the edge of DeFi are the things that uh, we'd love to figure out how to integrate into the more traditional finance system, and then vice versa. The sort of enterprise-ready, production-quality software that we have to deploy on the enterprise side is the type of uh, the type of infrastructure that we'd want to bring to you know to the startup side of the equation
0: got it and and do you still i know there's been um joe joe lubin uh, the founder of consensus um i think announced earlier this year and um, consensus 2.0 would love to hear more about maybe how your model has changed or evolved um, as a result are you still incubating these many startup teams, working on crypto projects, financing them, providing them support, and then hoping to see that go over time? Or how has the model, I guess, changed? Sure. So I can't, uh, all that stuff is in flight
1: um, and I can't uh, quite lay it out, but I'd say not, you know, the way consensus looks today not much, uh, uh, has shifted. Uh, I think we're really excited about the entrepreneurial energy in the space and continue to back, uh, companies that are promising and value additive to the Ethereum ecosystem. And that is at the DNA of consensus and not going to go away. Um, and is continues to be very important. I think what you is fair to, um, uh, to kind of, impute from our conversation is that we recognize that it's super important to have industry traction and that the, where the, the entire crypto ecosystem, uh, has gone, it, you know, is primarily, uh, trading activity so thinking around crypto assets as trading assets and then building derivatives on them and building exchanges around that and then building custody for all the stuff and figuring out how to put it into a pie chart Um, and while that is great for generating interest in the asset class which is very unique from a finance perspective like most people don't really don't find themselves engaged or interested in the financial products they hold that is separate and a, and unique for crypto assets so i think it's good in that regard but we also recognize that for for all of us to still be here in five years focused on what we're doing and not seem uh like you know like we're in a separate world but our moving the economy forward and really integrating these solutions into how people live every single day and and not just from a, uh, not just from a finance asset perspective in order to do that, to get that done, we need to have um, kind of operating traction with customers of all sorts of types, whether those customers are real human beings that are, you know, using, blockchain-based phones with, with uh, crypto assets and engaging with them and interacting with them on a meaningful daily basis the same way they would with an app, or if those customers are small businesses, or if those customers are you know, the large providers of services to the small businesses. So you need to develop the entire value chain. And so uh, what we recognize is that financial services as an industry is the where we've seen the most progress, both for crypto as a whole for crypto assets as a whole. And then more specifically within Ethereum, um, designing machines that manufacture financial instruments is a strength of Ethereum. and whether those financial instruments are security equivalents from the ICO boom or whether they are lending equivalents from the deFi movement or whether they are venture capital equivalents from the Dow blow up, um, you know, or whether they're crypto payments and kind of payment processors, all of those things are being built and developed, and so we we do have a strong point of view that there is a financial services overlay.
0: I think you sit in a very unique place, right, where you get to you have exposure to so many great teams and working on different verticals within the crypto space. Wondering from your th- from your perspective, what are the main challenges to get to mass adoption of crypto And you know I think we all recognize all I mean the the relatively few of us that are involved in the space right now that there's a massive opportunity ahead and many of us are super excited about what's to come but the data indicates that certainly on the DAP, um, Font right, like usage is relatively low. The vast majority of the public still hasn't purchased crypto. Maybe they've heard about Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they haven't really engaged or um, purchased it. How do we? How do we transition, in your mind, from where we are now to mass adoption of uh, cryptocurrency and and blockchain technology in general? That's a great question. Um, you
1: know, it's. I, I think about that question. I would answer that question differently depending on what hat I had um, had on. So I'll, I'll give you like my prior answer uh, from from yeah. the research perspective, and the answer there was was all. I, my intuition was around um, phones. And hardware devices, and then the soft, the the apps on those phones. So, if everybody has a Samsung or a Huawei phone, and I'm just going go to go into Asia immediately, uh, just because that's where I see that stuff happening more quickly, you know. So, if everyone's got a Samsung that is also a wallet, and you are. When you when you open up Samsung Pay, for example, there's no difference between a Visa credit card, a Bitcoin, uh, you know, Dai, or any other crypto asset, um, and everything else is abstracted away from a user experience. To me, that's you know that's the baseline. So by analogy, you can kind of think about Real Player in two thousand and two. Do you do you remember Real Player? Did you you using it at all? Yeah. Unfortunately, I do. So it's exactly that's it's the worst experience. It's always buffering. It's it downloads videos that are grainy to your computer, and it's full of ads and spyware. And you know, it's dead, it should be dead. And it is dead. But of course, they were 100% correct about where the internet was going, which is video, right? So now you look at YouTube, you look at Twitch, you look at snap and Instagram, and everything is video. So they weren't wrong. They were just, they didn't have the rails to deliver video in 4K over broadband. Uh, There wasn't even standards in the browser. It was all flash. So um, I think a lot of the user experience today is real player, which is just not going to be mass adopted until you get to a YouTube quality, like until it's as easy as using YouTube you're not going to get there. And then number two, the thing to think about why YouTube succeeded is it wasn't just a flash video player. It was all the pirated content on it, mm-hmm. you know, and just to be explicit about it. Um, the reason people adopted in large part, the iPod is that they had a whole bunch of Napstered MP3s on their computer and the iPod was a place to put it. The reason YouTube won out is because it's, it had uh content you could stream, and it was already benefiting from things that normal people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. The reason Google grew so well is because content went from behind media walls on paper to everything's now just on the internet and, and free, and Google is how you find it and access it. So you need that body of content for people to engage with. And so when you move to the finance world, you need to bootstrap both sides of that. Number one is you need the the easy user experience, which I I am seeing how that is developing, but I don't think we've converged on the winner yet. I mean, mm-hmm. Coinbase and Binance have some of that for sure, um, but they are still so capital markets and trading focused that um, I think there is a distance to travel. And then number two is you need something that people actually want um, to engage with. You need like that, set of content that you want to see. And it's, it's tough in finance. And the example I go to is, uh, Mike Cagney's figure, which is, uh, Mike Cagney is a founder of SoFi. Um, he, he got kicked out of SoFi and his next, uh, his next startup is called figure and it's a home equity loan. So you own a house. Um, you are approaching retirement. Of course, you haven't saved enough because that's how it is now in the world. People don't have money when they approach retirement. So, what you do is you more you take out money from the equity of your house. Um, so, this is a real human need. Um, it is a human need that is repeatable and has a giant market and happens all the time. And traditionally, banks focus on this need. Digital lenders have an opportunity to fight the banks and be smarter about the actual credit underwriting and you know uh Mike's got experience doing that through SoFi and this is a new digital lending vertical. Uh and so for Figure, which is the startup that does this, the all the underlying stuff around the home equity loan is happening on a proprietary private chain um, instead of a spreadsheet or a database or a bunch of paper. And so if you're if you're approaching this from sort of a religious point of view and you say, you know, only public chains, only Bitcoin and maybe Uh, you know, ether and whoever else is allowed in your portfolio, only these public chains are the real deal. Then figure doesn't make any sense. But if you look at the fact that figure is going to be underwriting more than, uh, you know, than maker has locked in it uh, and is actually taking uh, economics out of that and is self-sustaining, then it it makes you think Mm -hmm. it makes you think Mm -hmm. about what people are actually going to buy and how they use it. So, Those are the types of things that I'm excited about of finding real customer need for products that people use every day um, and then abstracting away the complexity underneath.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do do you see that more in an evolution, I guess, of the traditional financial system that we have right now rather than, you know, a whole new way of... Exchanging value and and transacting, or I just wonder if you know you think this is something completely new, or more like the example you just gave, which I tend to think is more in line of you know just an evolution of what we already have and do. I think it gives humans too much credit to
1: say, to to describe. I think it's rhetorical flourish to describe something as, um, you know so new and different that we've you know we've never had it before and it's gonna kill everything prior to it especially around finance and that's not so I let's just take electricity right I think blockchain is like electricity I think it's a step function in human technology and capability I think nothing from a software perspective was like it before. And I think it opens up a whole blue ocean of things we can build um, and power up um, that were just not available, right? So derivatives on derivatives, collateral, triple collateralized and moved around in near real time on DeFi protocols, not available to us before on Mm -hmm. old infrastructure. And I think five to 10 years from now that will be even more clear. But if you look at electricity, like think about a laundromat in 1920, like a a laundromat powered by electricity is amazing. It's a, you know, it's a robot that washes your clothes and for thousands of years before not available to human beings, um, you know, but at the same time, everybody had always needed to wash their clothes. And you look at peer-to-peer exchanges or peer-to-peer lending and you say, uh, never before have we had the ability to you know, do with financial instruments what we do now, and build order books in real time, and dissolve them, and all this stuff. Um, and yet, you know, people have traded since uh, since people were able to have language and talk and form communities. So, I I think blockchain just lets us do more of who we are, uh, and we need to in order to make it. Uh, make it uh, kind of integrated into our everyday life we need to do the hat trick of both innovating on the consumer side and getting people who are early adopters to use the cool tools and then we need to forcefully push it uh, and sell it into the more conservative side of the market because that is 99.9 percent of the assets and customers so we need to catalyze Mm -hmm. that
0: yeah yeah makes sense i guess the way I think about it is um, it's it's probably both, right? there's there's an, a natural evolution that's gonna happen and is already happening. But at the same time, I do think it also creates some completely new opportunities that just never existed before, right? When you can um, you know, move a billion dollars in one second for like two cents, and at the same time, you can wire money across borders for basically free and there's just so many new use cases that probably never existed before because i could never send you you know five cents right the transaction would cost more using legacy financial services
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think to some of the things from uh when i was younger that appeared you know really scarce and hard and impossible and it's um you see something you see something on tv that you really like and you're like i'm never gonna see that before uh, again or you hear a music uh you hear music you like on the radio you hear a song and it's just you know i gotta record that off the radio Mm, on a cassette it'll it's gone forever right and that's nonsense today or if you think about long distance calling like if you move from one country you know so i immigrated to the us from uh russia and now i live in london and so um you know, long distance calling your relatives or writing letters because you'll never see those relatives again. And it is trivial right now to boot up video and see your relatives in any time zone you want. Um, and money is exactly the same. Like you say, what used to be super difficult in the past, moving a billion dollars across four jurisdictions, you can snap your finger and just get it done. Um, and the faster we get to people thinking that's the default and that it's really even just boring to consider that, that it's like, of course, that is the the texture of our universe, um, the better off we'll all be.
0: um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And one more question on that before we move on to my next question. Um, So, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of talk about um, Libra, uh, Facebook's blockchain project, um, and my question is related to what we just talked about. How how do you how likely is it in in your mind, or how do you think about innovation coming from established, traditional tech and and finance companies versus you know native new blockchain startups? Right. and and Libra is one example another is Apple rolling out their uh, credit card just now how, how likely do you think they will succeed kind of in this new world of um, blockchain as opposed to these um, new startups like um, like Mike's uh, example that you gave earlier I think that's a
1: question with a lot of granularity to the answer behind it. Um, and, you know, so t- it, to bubble up the truth, I would say, um, I do think that something has changed in the nature of of corporate competition where, and it's different case by case. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, th- I think you, for any industry, you have to think about, the distribution of the quality of the companies you know so there is going to be power laws that accrue uh, a lot of clients and leadership to a few oligopoly players at the top and then you're going to have uh, middle players and then you'll have a long tail and that's true for all the you know for finance and it's true for for tech i think something has changed in the nature of competition more recently where as companies have become more increasingly software or platform companies, right? You go out of manufacturing product and you go towards uh, user attention. And you see this in the messaging of everybody from Goldman Sachs to the NASDAQ now. forget. I mean, obviously Apple and Amazon and Facebook, Um, but even in more traditional financial incumbents, you see the messaging that they are attention companies, they're tech companies, they're building platforms, whether or not that's true. And the the nature of competition is that it used to be the bigger you get, the worse things are for you. The bigger you get, the slower you are, the less you see. uh, And startups can nip at your ankles and build things around you. And now I think for the large tech companies, there are increasing returns to scale. So you get more data, you can hire better AI PhDs, you can uh, run more experiments because you now have sort of lean startup or agile or the scientific method is applied within corporations. So I think for a lot of the AI tech company, and then by the way, you can also uh, impact regulation and elect presidents, right? So you, you do have this return to scale that is... Uh, that that is a little bit worrying. And I think it's different for the finance industry and the tech industry for um, for the finance industry. There's a more much more existential threat where they might not be able to uh, get the right talent in place. They might not understand the technology. They might push against it too much. And especially that's a threat to the middle and the long tail, right? JP Morgan and Goldman, they're gonna be fine. Um, Regions and Fifth Third and, you know, the, the rest of the, the other 10,000 banks in the US and the other 3,000 banks in Europe, those are the ones that are going to feel a crunch uh, from startups who are much faster. On the, on the big company tech side, I feel that th- that is meaningful competition because they already have the user attention. And so, you know, I wouldn't discount what Apple is able to get done, or what Amazon or Facebook are able to get done globally. Um, because it's very hard to pry people out of their platforms and put them into, you know, to convince somebody they shouldn't be using Apple Pay, they should be using MetaMask, even though MetaMask is great. Um, I think you've got to solve a lot of these, a lot of issues with the real world before you can get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they have this like massive. Uh, user base already right like facebook just turns it on in whatsapp and suddenly billions of people can transact using the platform they're already used to
1: which is yeah i mean i think if you look at um if you look at fintech outside of um outside of the large tech players you've got Robinhood and acorns and Revolut and n26 uh you know to some extent you could say coinbase is in there and sofi and so you've got these vertical product champions that have all raised you know 200 500 billion 2 billion from softbank or some other equivalent thereof um, and some of those vertical champions will remain and i think that's also true for uh the really good crypto companies is that one two three maybe ten will make it through and become large established brands and we already see the foundations for that in place um but it's going to be hard to turn over you know and and be the next facebook or or be the next amazon just because you're on a blockchain chassis
0: yeah yeah you'll probably need to come up with a, a new business model right it's not just gonna be facebook 2.0 or apple 2.0 it's certainly not gonna be facebook from
1: 2008 (laughs) uh i you know i just i don't get it i don't get that approach uh like let's build a thing that people hate now but make it red and put tokens in it i just don't see how that works
0: so so what are the um, curious what are the categories or uh, sectors you're most excited about within crypto. There's been a lot of talk earlier this year, people thought this is gonna be the year of the DEX, or you know, there's been a lot of um, talk about STOs. Um, I've been reading some of your excellent writings, and I know you uh, sounds like you're pretty passionate about fully featured DAOs, and would love to hear more about categories you're most excited about and uh, why.
1: I think there's a two-step, two-step evolution. So, you know, and and I'm always interested in the edge, uh, uh, personally. And so, I think the the two-step evolution is we've got a number of different DAOs that manufacture financial product across sector, and they've been tested to some extent over the last three years. And so, the first step is let's aggregate those into the financial services assistant of the future, right? Um, The equivalent of whatever you get today from one of these vertical fintechs. So a DAO that can lend and that can trade and that can underwrite insurance uh, and underwrite loans, not just based on collateral, but on real life information and that can do payments and all of those things. So the aggregation of the different Lego pieces and the different protocols. I think it's it's actually this is a really hard step. So in traditional finance, it's fairly trivial to to do data aggregation. You you either ask nicely through APIs or, or an OFX file, or you you know you brute force it by taking a client username password and just taking the data out. Um, and then you've got Mint.com with DeFi protocols. I think you can certainly integrate all of them into an experience, but they don't all have this, you know, uh, obvious logic. They're not all coherently thought out in terms of the financial product uh, architecture. So you need need kind of either curation engines or some sort of human decision process to sit on top and say, you know, this is appropriate for a client or not. And I'm going to put aside the sort of thing of like, you know, caveat emptor, like if, you know, anyone using DeFi should just assume the risk of whatever it is they're interacting with. Cause end of the day, people, it's nearly impossible to know what all the risks are and it's a very technical product. Mm-hmm. So I think there's the aggregation itself is a hard task and we see stuff like Instadap and then other, other apps moving forward and doing that. But I think there's just way, way, way more work to do there. Mm-hmm. So that's step one. Uh, and then step two is traditional products, traditional investment products, so the rest of the world, right? So how do you pull together both your, uh, you know, your DeFi lending and your, uh, you know, your lo- your Walmart loyalty points and your, your Visa credit card, and then, you know, your student loans in one place. And how do you make that, how do you optimize between those different financial goals and the constraints they generate Um, and to me that's step two and it's really interesting Um, and of course to solve for that you need to solve a whole host of infrastructure and legal issues underneath Um, and i think you know that might take two years or that might take 20 years Um, but on the other side of the um, of that process are some really compelling consumer experiences that I mean, I, I think we're just going to be really, uh, we're going to be surprised how powerful those experiences are and how disempowering they are to traditional financial institutions.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you do think we would, uh, we would still need a human sitting on top of all of these systems just to, Oh, oh do you see, oh, or do you see kind of the DAO being fully automated um, at some point to the point where, you know, it's basically software and we don't have people involved in necessarily in the governance um, of, of some of these uh, projects?
1: So I'll give you two analogies. Um... So the, the quick answer to your question is yes, both of those will, will exist simultaneously. So today you can drive down a road in Pennsylvania and you'll have a self-driving Tesla. And then next to that, you'll have, uh, you know, a horse and buggy with a couple of Amish people in it. Right. So both, both of those things exist at the same point of time on the same road. Um, the analogies that help me think about it are the, you know, the engine, for example, for, for kayak, for comparison shopping, uh, different travel tickets and pricing algorithms. So there's software that the airlines themselves have to optimize the pricing of their ticketing. And then there's the kayak layer, which is comparison shopping, which is optimizing on the behalf of the consumer. It used to all be done by travel agents. And now it's the software algorithm. And there's a 10 year journey from exposing the airline systems and the ticketing and pricing there, to then building Travelocity, which just aggregates it and creates filters, to then building Kayak, which has a data science AI type layer that, you know, mixes and matches things to give you kind of a recommendation. And I think, you know, in crypto and the Dow land, similarly, like how much human is involved in optimizing what the DAOs manufacture for you against what the human being actually needs um that's a big question mark for me Mm -hmm. you know because not people don't buy financial products it's it's i think uh it's a crypto lens that's wrong in my view that like you put up a finance product and people come and get it because it's got some interest rate or it's got some investment proposition. People don't buy individual products. They, they solve their goals. Like they want to buy a house. They need a mortgage. They need to invest for retirement. They'll make a pie chart. You know, they, they're going through a divorce. They'll get an advisor to tell them how to split the assets. That's how people interact with finance. The, the people who are chasing the individual products are enthusiasts and early adopters, and I'm one of them, but it's a danger to generalize my own point of view to, to others. So I th- that's, that's kind of one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is the journey that music took. So, you know, we digitized all the MP3s through Napster uh, and distributed them through Napster. And now they're on our iPods. And this is 2002. And. Um, the next step is was Pandora. It wasn't Spotify. It was Pandora. And Pandora recommended to you music you would like based on the attributes of the songs. But the really interesting part that I remember about Pandora is that even though the algo to recommend was kind of – I mean, it was a regression, but it was kind of like a machine learning – v zero because you could change the the regression in real time Mm -hmm. Um, but the actual tagging of attributes into the songs the 50 attributes about genre and beat and all that that was done by music master students so they had like 50 music students in a room you know human tagging the stuff for the machine Um, and that was necessary for 10 years before you got to uh ai and full automation on music classification and then you get to Spotify. And I think for DAOs, again, you, you have the same thing, which is like, yes, you're going to have tons of logic in the protocols themselves. And you know some will be more automated in their governance structure and some will be voting-based and more human. And both of those will fail in different ways. And we've got that 10-year journey to learn of what is the right mixture of human beings versus automation and where you know, where do you where do you have the human touch, and where do you avail yourself to uh, legal systems
0: in the in the human world? Yeah, the the regulation aspect of it is pretty tricky in itself, right? How do you regulate a DAO? Yeah. And how do you bring you know major major players, whether it's in finance or in tech, um, into DAOs because typically they would want it to be regulated so that's, that's just going to be fascinating to see how that evolves
1: i don't think these are i don't think these are intractable questions to be honest with you i mean we've we're doing some work around that and i've seen others do good work around you know thinking through the law and uh, smart contracts and you know and the core is if everything you're doing digital everything you touch is digital right so That means you can't do security tokens because security tokens point to legal contracts in, in, in the physical world. But if everything you're doing is digital, then yeah, you can enforce, um, breach, uh, and you can enforce other legal requirements and mechanisms like payments or voting. You can enforce all of that through software alone, and you can build the governance into a DAO and other. Other industries, like just the cotton industry, for example, globally producing the cotton that goes into clothing, use private legal systems and get you know get away with it to the extent that everything they do is within that private legal system. But most of our human activity needs to be enforced in the physical world. So you know if if we get out of this, if MakerDAO isn't just about collateralized. Loans where they already have your position, but is actually underwriting something about you. You know, they're taking you're, you're looking at somebody's capacity to pay, and you're saying, okay, based on this, I'll give you a personal loan because I think you'll repay it. Well, then, let's say this person doesn't repay it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now they're in breach. You got to go into whatever jurisdiction they're in and start finding ways to get your loan repaid. You know, seize property or put some lien on their income or, or something, right. Some sort of, um, uh, impact, uh, on their life outside of the software, but you can moderate that you can, you know, you can write clauses into smart contracts that decide jurisdictions that bump these decisions out into the local courts. Mm -hmm. Um, and for sure, if if you want to bring traditional financial institutions into this stuff, you're going to need to do that. And the way you would package it is actually, you wouldn't call these things DAOs. You would just say, we're going to take your workflows, your regular traditional workflows for underwriting or for you know risk tolerance or asset allocation. We're going to take those workflows and business logic and turn them into software. And instead of selling you that software, we're just going to open source it and make it so that you can query it and ping its APIs and have its processes run for you externally. Mm -hmm. And an entire industry could then use this bundle of business logic, which end of the day is a DAO. Uh, But to make that something people would use, no question, you need to also build out the legal
0: side of it uh, to be something that they'd accept. Absolutely. And and do you think that... Do you think there's also going to be innovation coming from places where, you know, maybe traditionally we haven't seen a lot of innovation coming from? Um, One of the things we keep seeing in crypto is more decentralized teams, right, working from remote locations and so forth. I know at consensus. correct me if I'm wrong, you also have a lot of teams that are decentralized and are comfortable working remotely. As we move to this new DAO uh, world or however we decide to package uh, that, do you think also teams are gonna be more decentralized and distributed in how they work? So that's, that's an interesting social question. Um... And it, only, it goes back to my
1: lame references about, you know, uh, being able to call anyone anytime with video, where you see that technology enabling people to work remotely. Um, you wouldn't be able to do that without, you know, without Zoom or, or Slack or something mm-hmm. like that in place or GitHub. Um, so, yeah, for sure. If you have finance versions of that infrastructure, it's going to be much easier to pay people um, like contractors, and uh, it's going to be easier to bank people who might not be uh, domiciled in jurisdictions that could have, that have good economic or legal systems, but where, the, where people are talented and able to do the, the work that we're talking about. So I do think it will enable a more global and interconnected workforce. Um, of course, that sets up uh, a fight with sovereigns. So the sovereign that's going to be the most affected is the one that is also the most fragile, right? Like the United States, if some tiny proportion of people are a little bit more remote, not nothing's going to change. But if you're talking about small countries with um, aggressive or poorly defined or corrupt economic systems that... You know, are going to start losing their top talent. Um, end of the day, it's going to come down to taxation. You know, so the the sort of invisible thing that people aren't talking about is they like DeFi protocols because they don't have to pay capital gains tax on their di- or they don't have to pay gains on on their dividends and stuff like that. Um, I think that's where the fight is going to happen.
0: Yeah, I just wonder. I guess my point is, do you also? To some teams, overcome some of these legal obstacles that we just talked about in terms of you know regulation of DAOs and so forth by having the team more decentralized or you know maybe working remotely out of more friendly I guess jurisdictions um, to some of these new business models. Uh, so I think <laughs> this is a personal bias. Um, <laughs> You
1: know, that I'll answer the question with, um, I don't, so there's two ways you can deal with power. Um, you can, you can fight it or you can figure out a way to work around it or with it. Yeah. And it just depends on your personality. you're, You're welcome to yell in the wind as much as you want. Um, I think the right answer longer term is to be fully compliant, uh, and figure out for each jurisdiction where you're working, how to do that. Um, and how to be a good participant and that's, what's going to get mainstream adoption. I think the other strategy is like regulatory arbitrage globally, keep moving around on your yacht, you know, uh, and, uh, try to not avail yourself to any of the laws. Um, you know, and I think Binance has done a smart job of that. Um, and, and certainly for for many others, it's a strategy of timing. Like, find the most friendly jurisdiction and go there. Um, from you know, from my head, both personally and from a consensus point of view, I would say that as a global entity, wherever we operate, we have to do that with the highest level of excellence. So the arbitrage doesn't doesn't really work long term.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a fair point. Um uh, it's gonna again, it's gonna be I think fascinating to see how that evolves. Um regulation is so top of mind for so many of us in the space right now. And it's so hard to predict, you know, how it's gonna play out from a regulatory perspective in some of these the, jurisdictions. The
1: regulators all on I think understand the context, which is global war for talent and innovation, and that um there's a balancing to do between innovation and consumer protection, and you know the regulators themselves—they're not lawmakers; they uh, they're part of the executive branch. So they they're trying to enforce the laws that exist. So humans in societies can participate in their political process to enact laws that they want, um, and so I, I think you've got to figure out. How to transform society more holistically and i think the regulators are not the enemy they are an enabler
0: uh, if we collaborate with them in the right way yeah i i I totally agree I, i think you made a very good point by the way about earlier about not selling you know or not thinking about necessarily developing financial products and selling them as a standalone solution but rather I guess, moving more to the point of sale phase and trying to integrate whatever financial product you're offering as part of the overall um, offering, which makes a lot of sense and kind of makes me think whether some of the startups that we're seeing should think more about integrating with some existing solutions rather than trying to develop a standalone financial product. I think that's a really great insight. I think a
1: lot of, um, <laughs> I wish I was the owner of that insight. I mean, <laughs> you can point to, you know, Max Lefchin and Affirm. Um, and that's that's been his core insight for a while that, you know, credit lives at the point of sale. So when somebody's buying a thing on the internet, uh, maybe give them the option to finance it. And that's the, you know, the Affirm button. That's the insight behind Green Sky, which is one of the kind of sleeper hits of the American fintech industry. You want to get home improvements. Um, let's say you need to fix up your kitchen or install a deck, which you know for Americans is, is something they do all the time. Um, and instead of going to a bank to get a loan to then go hire a contractor, the new workflow is you call up a contractor that can remodel your kitchen, that home contractor comes with an iPad. The iPad has the green sky app on it. So they say, I'll remodel your kitchen. And by the way, you know, we can get this finance through green sky, which then intermediates banking other banks to loan into that transaction. So it's in the real world at the point of sale. So if you're a crypto entrepreneur, like think less about crypto and think about the stuff that people are buying. So like find a site that sells kids toys and you know, point of sale, kids' kids toy financing using MakerDAO. Uh, this, this is just what's on my mind right now, uh, kids' toys and Maker. But, you know, there's, there's thousands of these permutations. You got to think about the market, not the product.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the more we see insights like that and, and, and entrepreneurs, kind of thinking about the real world use cases of some of the products that are working, the better we would be, the better off we would be as an ecosystem, right? You gotta think about the real pain points that you're solving and you know, how to make the experience as frictionless as possible, which obviously there's a lot of room to, to improve on that uh, in terms of where we are right now as, as, as an industry. There you go, absolutely. Great! Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on, Lex. Really enjoyed the conversation, and really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me.
1: Uh, for listeners that are interested in more of this type of content, uh, I've got a weekly newsletter called Future of Finance. You can get it through um, either LinkedIn or I think I I link to it in my Twitter, uh, Lex Oakland and then keep keep posted for what consensus is doing around fintech and I'll I'll be sure to share more news as I have it.
0: Yeah, and, and if um entrepreneur out there wants to reach out to consensus and look to partner with you or collaborate with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Easy. Um, you can send me an email at, at consensus.net. Yeah, it's the only company where .net is actually kind of cool. Uh, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> we made .net cool. Um, Or, you know, you can, um, through LinkedIn or Twitter, you can uh, DM me, and I'm happy to take it that way too.
0: Great, thanks so much again, Lex, for for coming on. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the world out.